0: So we're continuing in the Gospel of Mark for uh, another few weeks uh, before we begin this new season of connection and connect. Um, We're gonna read the next section, which is in Mark chapter six. If you want to follow along in your Bible, or there's a tab, if you're watching this at four o'clock on Sunday, you can connect with that and, and read along with the text with me. I'm reading from the New International Version, the NIV. And we're beginning in verse 14 and read through to verse 29 of this, Really interesting story. Here's what Mark writes. King Herod heard about this and what happened previously was Jesus sent his disciples out and they were casting out demons and preaching the kingdom. So King Herod heard about this for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing that he, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The gospel of Mark so far, this just feels really different. I don't know if you've noticed that if you've read this before, but it, it, feels differently from what has gone before and somewhat what comes afterwards. It kind of reads like, from my perspective, as being a high school student in Scotland, a kind of Shakespearean play It's very much like that. Or classic tabloid press kind of stuff, all this kind of salacious news and information and gossip. Or some HBO television series, perhaps, full of religion and ambition and uh, royalty and celebrity and murder, intrigue, what is the purpose of this story at this point in the gospel of Mark and how does this section of scripture perhaps relate to our lives now because it definitely seems like a different kind of a story to what we have become used to from Mark for one thing it doesn't really talk much about Jesus it's pretty much all about this interesting episode about John the Baptist who we've already heard had been arrested and now we hear this like fuller backfilling of the story So a few things about this that I think we need to pay attention to. And the first thing is that clearly it seems here, the kingdom of Jesus demands an explanation. The things that are happening, they beg an explanation because they are somewhat unusual, unexpected, surprising. And people need to kind of label it somehow. Uh, For example, we've heard people saying, who is this? Where does he get his power? We, We know his relatives, he grew up among us. Isn't he the carpenter? He's the kid that we watched growing up. We were familiar with him. We know what he's all about. And they're trying to figure out, like, who is he? And what is he, what is going on? And now we're in a new situation. Prior to this, it's been kind of the family. And it's been the neighbors. And kind of these, like, nobody almost kind of people, right? But now the questions are arising they're kind of floating up to these higher areas of of society these larger more powerful arenas and it's actually typically going to become more dangerous at this point that there's a wondering about who Jesus is he's on the radar of these rulers now and so that the questions are, are asked right at the beginning of this passage the same stuff who is this what, what, is, what, what accounts for these miracles in this life of this person, Jesus, that is becoming more and more well-known, at least by name? And so we, we hear these things that Mark shares, that some are saying that John the Baptist has returned to life, that John, who has been beheaded, has somehow come back to life. You know, and John had a profound ministry early on, uh, before Jesus came onto the scene, it was a large movement with his disciples, which was cut short and ended, but perhaps it is John who has come back. Uh, and, and that would explain somehow that this kind of new sense of miraculous stuff because prior to that, John had a simple message. There was no miracle, simply baptizing and calling people to repentance. That was it. Um, apart from the strange diet of honey and locusts, that was important too. But he was a very particular kind of ministry. Now, if it's him, could it be he has come back? And some were saying that uh, Jesus was Elijah, that Elijah had come back. And and that's interesting because Elijah is a prophet, a very early prophet in the Old Testament. And in 2 Kings, we hear this amazing story that Elijah, rather than dying, actually ascends to heaven directly in this kind of chariot of fire. Um, and so there'd been this long sense that Elijah may return since he didn't die, somehow he may return again. And Jesus actually mentions Elijah at one point in Mark in connection with John the Baptist. And it's part of this prophecy and it's in the, gospel, it's sorry, the, the book of Malachi. It's an Old Testament prophet. And he, Malachi, connected Elijah's return with the coming of the Lord to his people. The Messiah would come and Elijah is used. Malachi says uh, these words, I will send my message messenger who will prepare the way before me and right at the beginning of Mark remember that's what John the Baptist is all about it said preparing the way for the Lord the one who will come and then suddenly the Lord you were seeking will come to his temple and the one may be longing for the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come says the Lord Almighty See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So this kind of sense that before judgment and all these kind of end times things, the prophet Elijah would come to usher in this new covenant, this new kind of way, and he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the children to their parents. And, and so Elijah, is it this Elijah that has come back is ushering in this, is this who Jesus is? And then. Uh, Elijah was known to be this patron saint of the poor and the needy, so maybe they're thinking about that because Jesus very clearly is is someone who seems to be on the side of the marginalised and the poor and the needy and the broken and the and the defiled, the religiously unpure and the ones that are the lowest place in society. So would, is that, that's what Elijah would do, surely. Um, actually, interestingly, when Jesus is on the cross in Mark chapter 15, it says, someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. And then he said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. So he, at that point, they're not thinking he's Elijah anymore. We're thinking Elijah may yet come. So these are the kind of ideas that were floating around that people are trying to understand Jesus in, 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 co- in these contexts and these frameworks. Others are just saying simply, it's like he's a generic Old Testament type prophet. He's, he's just one of the prophets uh, come to give a message from God. And so John was like a prophet, uh, Jesus is like a prophet. That's actually quite common in some religious beliefs. For example, in the Muslim faith, um, they believe in a, a, a consecutive line of prophets with Muhammad being the final prophet who brings the complete revelation of God. He's the one we must pay attention to. Most pay attention to Jesus is actually very revered in, in Islam, but yet only as one of the prophets. And so then, so Mark talks about this as John the Baptist, is, is Elijah, is just some generic Old Testament prophet? Who is Jesus? But then he gets right to the point, makes it personal for the story and says, who did Herod think Jesus was? Who is Herod thinking Jesus was? And it seems that out of these options, Herod has subscribed to the idea that John has returned to life. His theory is that John has come back. And I think that's probably very connected with this story in terms of the guilt and the shame and the, and the fear perhaps that that Herod has felt from what he did to John. Because it's someone that he kind of revered as a holy man, but he was in this position where he, he couldn't see any way out other than to execute John. So he's thinking it's John come back, perhaps to haunt him. Jesus, has John returned? Um, it's very much like uh, one of my favorite Shakespeare plays is Macbeth, not just because it's Scottish, but, but well, that's partially, but when I was in high school, I found the whole thing to be very, uh, just disturbing and a, an incredible story of this Scottish person called Macbeth who sought to be king uh, and ended up murdering to try and set that up because there was a prophecy of these from these witches who said that one day you will be this king and so he, he tried to shortcut it. And that often happens in these kind of situations. But there's a man called Banquo Uh, whom uh, Macbeth and his wife, uh, they murder Banquo. And he appears uh, at this feast as a ghost and no one can see him except for Macbeth. And he is horrified that Banquo has come to reveal the truth about what he's done. But it's kind of the sense of of fear almost in in Herod's uh, understanding of the identity of Jesus. It's like, John has come back. He has come back. And so it seems clear that as people try to figure out who Jesus is, it's very much from the framework of what they already know. They find it very hard to have a a completely unique and novel understanding, or even to look uh, at the Old Testament in a way that that would lead them to different conclusions. It's it's the easier way perhaps to say, well, it's probably this or this or this, John or Elijah or just a prophet. And so it kind of tells you uh, some of the, uh, the categories of understanding about Jesus, uh, they seem quite kind of uh, clear. The first, so John the Baptist, it's is sort of like a sense of this prior religious movement that's maybe there's kind of a stuckness and incompleteness. And it was just this message of repentance. And we see from the gospel that from John it moves into Jesus and really John's work is done. But there were many, many disciples of John the Baptist and they as often religious people do, they get stuck in this particular mode of understanding God and his work in the world. And so they're thinking, well, it's, it's John. He's come back to continue what he was doing, um, which we thought was important and good. And Or Elijah, friend of the poor and needy. So they're, they're categorizing from what they see Jesus doing, and they're saying, well, that's like Elijah. It's probably Elijah come back because that's something that's in our understanding. Or this sense of a generic prophet, that Jesus is one who's coming to, to be a, someone who's foretelling uh, the future and hopefully a good future for Israel rather than now living. And if Jesus was about anything, it was about right there, right then, um, but that they had this sense of a prophet because they're hoping for better news to come in the future. Or Herod's Jesus, which is built somewhat on his fears and his guilt. It's, that's the framework for, through which he is seeing Jesus and he's understanding it out of his deeper emotional uh, state about, as to what he's done. Uh, so once again, in, in the Gospel of Mark, I think there is a caution for us contained in this story because we can do the very, very same thing with Jesus. We typically will understand Jesus uh, according to the frameworks of reference that we already have, and that's the easier way to do it. So for example, uh, we may have, similar to as John the Baptist, this kind of uh, set way of, of understanding God and his work in the world. Uh, we can have an understanding of Jesus of, as my Sunday school Jesus or my first church experience Jesus and, and we see him through that lens and we see that, oh, that's Jesus, I understand him. Or the Jesus of social justice, that's like Elijah, friend of the poor and needy, he has come to right the wrongs and fix injustice and, and that's, what it's, that's the full idea of Jesus, he is the one who does that. Or uh, perhaps this prophetic sense that he's the end times Jesus. Jesus, so we see Jesus is all about not now, living in this world right now, but actually what it's all about when he returns and what that's gonna look like. Or maybe he's the Jesus of my shame and my guilt and I I find myself reflecting on Jesus from these places of hurt and brokenness or or guilt in my own life about what I have done. And and, you know, these all kind of, there's maybe some elements, that we can connect with Jesus, but Mark really wants us to know something, and it's that Jesus is unique. I think that's why he keeps telling us that these people are trying to figure out who Jesus was, and they're always confounded by his behavior and his words, his power, his miracles, his, his journey, which is so unpredictable and surprising, uh, and he wants us to refrain from these kind of quick judgments. Um, You know, if we can characterize Jesus, unfortunately, he's much easier to discount. And if we can put Jesus in a box, he is much easier to control. And if we think we have him figured out, he is much easier to dismiss. So I think he's asking us, you know, in in kind of a response or an echo to what these people are asking, and he's gonna ask his disciples these questions. Who do you say that Jesus is? And have ourselves perhaps question our first, second, and third answer and be curious and interested to really receive that knowledge in an ongoing and experiential way with the word but also with how he is working in our lives. Um, The second thing is the kingdom of Jesus clearly, the Mark teachers here, always confronts earthly powers always confronts earthly powers. We've seen this movement of Jesus where he comes, the demons appear and he casts them out. He is coming against this kingdom of darkness, but there's another kingdom eh, on the earth that always finds itself, will find itself in opposition to the kingdom of Jesus. And we're introduced here to a powerful man. His name is Herod Antipas. And he is introduced here as King Herod. I don't think it's any mistake that Mark, even though not probably a fan of Herod, would introduce him as king, because that's exactly what the ambition of Herod was and the whole family of the Herods. Um, he, he was actually in the process of rebuilding the temple because that's something that kings would do for Israel. He really wanted to be accepted by the Jewish people as their king. I'm, I'm the king of the Jewish people of Israel in the line of David and Solomon but he was really very much not that even in terms of uh, his lineage. And John had come and announced a new king for his people, for God's people and it was Jesus who was the king. So we we hear about John being concerned about this illegitimate marriage that Herod had entered into and it's not simply that John the Baptist was concerned about the moral problem for that, it was the whole picture of herod that john is telling everyone that herod is the wrong kind of king herod is the wrong kind of king he is not the king that we should hope for or trust in or 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 follow he's the wrong kind of king mark also echoes this by telling us these details pulling the curtain back on the intrigue and the brokenness of that community that royal court that herod is the wrong kind of king He is the wrong kind of king in contrast to Jesus. And then Jesus himself echoes this in the Gospel of Mark that Herod is the wrong kind of king. He says in uh, chapter eight, verse 15 to his disciples, be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And yeast merely meaning something that kind of gets in through all society and it it kind of can become uh, a pollutant uh, to the good things of the kingdom. Watch out for the yeast, not just of the Pharisees, but also of Herod. Herod is the wrong kind of king. it's just this really serious, strong contrast between the powers and the kingdoms of the earth and the kingdom of God. And they're about as antithetical uh, to one another as they could be and as much of a contrast as you can imagine. The earthly kingdom is all about making alliances uh, and it's all about ambition and it's about power and it's about ruthless jockeying for more power. And, and no earthly king, Mark's telling us, can ever fulfill the kingly role that is reserved for Christ, the King of Kings, alone. And, and the people who were listening to this if they understood the history of Israel would like we just know what's happening here because the story of Herod and the beheading of John echoes so many of the stories of the failed kings of Israel throughout time and, and by extension the kings of the Philistines and, and all of these other people who are, are, are recorded in the pages of scripture so for Saul he was the first one that people said we want a real king like our neighbours have kings and God's like it, told, you know, the prophet says God is your king is it? but we want a real king and there was Warned, like this is gonna be difficult, but Saul is crowned king and it becomes bad and David is chosen by God to be the, be the king, but David has all sorts of problems, Solomon the same way, and there's a whole line of kings, some of whom seem to be better and some of whom are incredibly wicked. And here's what happens. All through that time, God sent prophets and then he sends Jesus, the son of God, to enter into that system. And when that kingdom enters into the context, it immediately begins to confront these broken systems. And those in power don't take kindly to their power being questioned. And that's what we're seeing here. Herod is clashing, his power, his authority, his ambition is clashing with the kingdom of God that is infiltrating the land and the community, society. You know, when our allegiance is to any ultimately uh, lesser cause, is gonna cause problems, especially for people who name the name of Jesus. And we need to affirm that we refuse to swear allegiance to any earthly king, but rather to Christ the king and to his people, people of all kinds who are diverse yet united in him and to his mission to build the kingdom using his ways and his means of prayer and loving service. As John was an example that he steps in and he faithfully administers the calling to which God has, um, God has given him and he does so, but he comes into conflict with the powers that be and we see what happens to him. Uh, but the third thing is, is that the kingdom cannot be stopped. This is a really, tragic story and one of the saddest sentences in Mark is here at the end of this passage. On hearing this about John's death, it says, John's disciples came and took his body. John's disciples came and took his body. This feels like defeat, a sad retreat into the pages of history, the end of the story. It seems like that's it. Not a very encouraging word. John has ended. His life has ended. His ministry has ended. You know, Mark's gospel was written to a Christian audience who were most likely beginning at that time when Mark was written and first read to experience some persecution for their refusal to acknowledge the King of Rome, Caesar, as Lord. That was the biggest problem for persecution of Christians in the early time, that they would not take that one step. They would swear allegiance to Jesus above all and would not offer a sacrifice to Caesar as Lord. And Mark wants his readers to not be surprised at the outcome of that decision of allegiance by showing us this story of what happens to John the Baptist. But he also wants his readers to understand that this is part of a much larger picture. And that ultimately, as Jesus says elsewhere in the gospels, he said, I tell you my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. It's like it's only death, right? And you know, this passage is filled with echoes that point us, Mark does this so well, point us towards the coming conclusion of Jesus's ministry which tells us kind of the overarching story of the sacrificial way of the kingdom of God that is perfectly exemplified in Jesus Christ and actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but is also foreshadowed uh, in John the Baptist's life. You know, the question could be, you ask a question, why this big long story? Yeah, this part of the gospel, why does Mark, who actually the whole gospel is these short, short stories, really quick, quick little episodes. That's how he writes. Suddenly he puts this big story that's not even really about Jesus. The beginning part says like who is Jesus and there's some things, but mostly it's just about this really interesting story about John the Baptist and Herod. And it goes into great detail. Well, here's why he does it, because he is he's, he's pointing towards what's going to happen to Jesus. I was reading a commentary and this, this uh, very smart guy had noticed these parallels between the story right here of John the Baptist and the story of Jesus later on in the gospel. And these parallels are just wonderfully clear. Uh, Mark is doing a wonderful job of highlighting certain things that are very much uh, common to both men and both stories. For example, in, in verse 17 of this chapter, uh, John is arrested and bound and put in prison. So there's the arrest. Chapter 14, Jesus is seized and arrested. There's a death plot in both stories. Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. Well, then later the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. There's a story with fear in it. Fear of this person this righteous person of God that is very much a kind of a, a catalyst for what happens to them it says Herod feared John and the later it says the chief priest they feared Jesus there's an innocent man he executed under pressure it says the king was distressed but because he didn't want to kill John but because of his oaths and his dinner guests he did not want to refuse this request Later on, Jesus also realizes that it's out of self-interest that the chief priest has handed Jesus over to him. And he says, I don't want to have anything to do with it. In fact, one of the gospel writers tells us, tells us that Pilate's wife warns him, have nothing to do with this man, but because of the pressure of the crowd and of the public, he gives Jesus over to be crucified. And then there's the burial. On hearing this, John's disciples, as we read, came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. And then for Jesus, that Joseph takes down the body, places it in a tomb, cut out of rock. So there's, there's these stories, and so Mark's writing to, a, to a, a community that is fearful of the consequences of their allegiance, their conviction that Jesus is Lord. So he doesn't want them to be surprised at what might happen to them as a result of that, but he also wants to point them beyond to something wonderful that the kingdom is eternal and the kingdom will not be stopped. There's a little hint at resurrection here in this passage with John the Baptist, you know, that even Herod is concerned uh, that Jesus, this man working power miracle is actually John returned to life uh, with powers that he didn't possess when he was baptizing in the Jordan River. And it's just a sense of like, wow, you cannot stop the kingdom. You cannot stop the kingdom. And Mark wants to make it really clear to us that John's faithfulness was sufficient. He fulfilled the role that God had from him. And even though he lost his life, death is not the end. The church cannot be stopped by that. There's a man, his name is John Christostom. That's a mouthful, that. John Christostom is a first century preacher. Way back, this is like very early in the first century, not long after these events took place. And he comments on this story of John the Baptist and here's what he says. He cut off the head, but he did not cut off the voice. He curbed the tongue, but he did not curb the accusation. And the the conviction and the righteousness of the kingdom of God continues to be perpetuated regardless of what evil people decide to do in response to it, to seek to shut it down, to cut it out. And we've seen that all over the world in times of persecution. It seems often then that the church actually begins to grow. And somehow this is amazing, uh, powerful movement that happens even though uh, there's attempts to shut it down. Uh, Tertullian, another early, early Christian writer, AD 197, he wrote this thing called The uh, Apologetic. And it's really a defense of the Christian way during a time of persecution. Uh, And there's a a, a, a Latin uh, or uh, Greek and then Latin uh, translation of what he said, which has been variously translated, but I think it's a really powerful uh, idea. And it says this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And someone else translated it as this We spring up in greater numbers the more we are mown down by you. The blood of the Christians is the seed of a new life. And then we multiply when you reap us. The blood of Christians is seed. Mark wants his people, his readers, to understand that they're. they're trust in Jesus is well founded and that this is not the end, even though they are facing persecution and even though John lost his life, he fulfilled his mission faithfully and it is not yet the end because the kingdom continues to move forward. Uh, The fourth thing to point out here is, is this. It's about choices and it's the tragedy of missing the kingdom of God. The tragedy of missing the kingdom of God. There's a repeated pattern so often with these men of power and then the kind of lone figure of the follower of God standing before them, usually hauled before them in chains and and telling them the truth about their lives and telling them the truth about God. And it always brings these powerful people to a point of decision where they have to choose to accept or reject the words of the messenger of God And so we had this with John and Herod. It says that Herod regularly liked to speak to John, but didn't really understand, but he kind of enjoyed that, but yet he takes his life. We have Jesus later on in the gospel being hauled up in front of Herod also, and having that interaction. We have Jesus and Pilate, who was the powerful Roman leader who had the final say to sign off on Jesus' death warrant. Jesus and the religious leaders, all these opportunities where they had a chance to turn and to accept what he was saying and follow. Um, Later on in Acts, which we studied a couple of years ago, we see Paul doing the very same thing. It's amazing, if you read all these together, you see there's repeated patterns that the, the courageous person of God is willing to stand before these powers and speak words of truth. And it's left then to the choice of the person listening to them. So there's Paul and Festus, who's a Roman leader, Paul and Felix, and then Paul and Herod. It's the Herods, it's like their family seems to have time and time again an opportunity to hear the good news, to hear about the kingdom, uh, to uh, let themselves be diminished from this earthly kingship and receive the, really, the one true king. There are actually six Herods in the New Testament. We can be confused by that. There are six Herods in the New Testament and it seems that all of them have some brush with this fledgling faith that they call Christianity. Uh, and so in the, in, the, in the incident with Paul and Herod, uh, Paul has been arrested by the Romans, but he's declared himself, I'm a Roman citizen, I want to be tried by Caesar, but Herod happens to be in town, and so he listens to him. And at the end of that interaction, where Paul is very clear about recounting the story of the Jewish people, the Old Testament, and saying, basically, bringing Herod, this different Herod, to a point of decision, here's how it goes. Um, Paul says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time, you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. And it's a sad story about Herod, the Herod in the story, the Herod that takes the head of John the Baptist because of this pressure of the powerful man around him. Um, because actually within 10 years of this moment, this execution of John, because of his ambitions to be king, he falls foul of a powerful Roman leader and he becomes exiled in disgrace to Spain along with his wife, where he would die soon afterwards. And all the memories of the splendor of his feasts and of his power over others kind of fades to dust. And then all that is left is one day he will meet the ones over whom he stood in judgment. Psalm 2 is an incredible psalm which Herod uh, would probably have known and would have done well to pay heed to. And it really speaks so powerfully into this context of these powerful people interacting with the kingdom of God and coming to this point of decision and choice. And the psalmist writes, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? today I have become your father. This is kind of referred in in the gospels to, to think something about Jesus. You're my son, today I'm your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore you kings be wise, be warned you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what has this got to do with us? Well, I think it tells us that that we too have a relationship with people in power, many of whom we have never met, people in politics and all kinds of positions of power. Uh, And what has been really disturbing in this season that we have had is, often Christians have done this kind of public calling out slander, angry, hateful words about people in power. And, and I think there's something we have to consider in the life of John the Baptist, um, that he was particularly called with a particular message at a particular time to King Herod. Jesus came and he was preaching also And sometimes we can get confused about what it means to call out people in power. There's a couple of different kinds of voices that we can use. Uh, And the first is a prophetic voice, a prophetic voice. And I think this is often misunderstood. Sometimes we think that throwing harsh truth out there is being prophetic. But if we understand that sort of tone when it comes to powerful systems and people, Uh, we will see if we understand scripture that it always comes from a place of love and humility. Uh, When Jesus comes to bring down the powerful and the mighty, it's always to raise them up to newness in the kingdom. Uh, The second voice, which is the one that we hear far more often than a a genuine prophetic voice is a mocking voice. And that comes from really hatred and self-righteousness. And it's very unfortunate that we seem to confuse the two often. Uh, we need to be really careful about how we talk about people in power. Uh, I just wanna refer to Isaiah. He was a prophet in the Old Testament. And he one of the greatest prophets ever in the Old Testament. I think sometimes people feel, we feel that we are being like Isaiah because we're calling out with strong words the the things that are wrong. But we always have to go back and see how the prophet first came to be a prophet in the first place. And in Isaiah, we see what happens uh, that Isaiah, is in the temple one day, and he uh, says this in the temple when he gets this encounter with the living God. He says, "'Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty.'" And then there's this amazing picture. It says, one of the seraphim, these angels, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Here am I send me. And from then on, Isaiah's life was very, very difficult because he was always trying to call people to back to faithfulness to God. And it was a very painful and difficult life for him. But it started with the sense that he too was a person of uncleanness and sin, and he needed to be cleansed. And then from that place, he could then go out and serve the kingdom of God amongst the people. So I think... When we think about the powerful people, whether it's a political person that you you don't like, you don't agree with them, I think it's a call for us to seek to be faithful to the particular call that God has placed on our lives. And and if you're in connection with someone who has a place of power, you have a place of influence with that person. Um, And if you don't, we can pray for these powerful men and women We can pray that they they would have their eyes and ears open to the good news of the kingdom, that they would see the people of God as as something uh, to be listened to and connected with, uh, that our lives would be a place of connection and that our love would be a a means of conviction and our community would be this place of renewal uh, that people uh, who are walking these roads and, and dealing with power would be able to see that they don't need to strive, they don't need to fight. They can lay down all of that and simply come to the rest, the peace and the joy of Jesus. So that we find that common ground before the cross where, where, where the mighty and humble are on level ground before the real King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Uh, let's be praying for our leaders. Let's be praying for, especially those uh, whom you find uh, disagreeable in the politics or whatever it is that they have, let's be a people of prayer and uh, that we understand that we have a mission Uh, And it is a humble mission, it's a mission of love, it's a mission of connection and community. Uh, Let's continue to do that together. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you that you have given us power, but that power is made perfect in weakness. Lord, make us humble servants. Lord, give us eyes to see all people is made in your image and worthy of our love, of our understanding. Lord, help us to be people who pray first. Uh, Help us to be people of gentle words, of unity, of confidence in your work, that we don't get all concerned when things don't seem to be going our way, but we trust in your abundant wisdom and the power of your kingdom to continue to persist even through dark and difficult times. Help us to be friends to the friendless. Help us to be the ones who someone will be taken aback when they expect to receive condemnation and harshness, but instead receive love and care. Lord, change us. We are your people and you are our king. In Jesus' name, amen.